Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the deplatforming and impeachment episode. I'm James Long, host of the podcast and associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. Today, I am joined by returning podcast champion, crowd favorite, and my colleague, Victor Minaldo. Victor is professor of political science and also a co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. Hello, Professor Minaldo. How are you? How's it going, James? Thanks for having me. I should say that listeners to this podcast can find this episode and previous episodes on our Anchor page, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast by searching for Neither Free Nor Fair. And you can also find the forum's other podcast series by searching for Political Economy Forum. We've decided to release today's episode as a special crossover for both series. Victor, I wanted to have you on this week because a kind of strange confluence because of a kind of strange confluence of events. You and I as political scientists often study pretty mainstream and relevant topics like liberal democracy, elections, economic development, corruption, technology, and innovation, but have suddenly found that two of the more obscure topics within those broader topics have now found themselves all over the news. Those topics are Section 230 and deplatforming on social media and the inner workings of the U.S. Senate, including how it conducts impeachment trials. So, Victor, the good news is that academics aren't always the cult of the irrelevant, uh, but the bad news is that because these are obscure topics, pundits and journalists often cover these issues with less expertise than we'd like. So I thought today we could offer our thoughts on these issues. And I also want to introduce a new feature of the podcast where we respond to listeners' questions. But rather than doing them first or all at the end, I thought we could instead intersperse them into the conversation as many of them relate to our discussion today. If our listeners have questions for neither free nor fair, they can always email us at uwpoliticaleconomyforum at gmail.com. That's all one word, lowercase, uwpoliticaleconomyforum at gmail.com. Please tell us your name and where you're from. Okay, Victor, you and I published uh, this week an opinion piece in the Seattle Times titled Section 230, Friend Not Foe of Free Speech. What is Section 230? What is deplatforming on social media? And what does any of this have to do with free speech in the election? Well, those are excellent questions. And my task here is to find a way to communicate these very technical things in the most straightforward way. So what is Section 230? It's basically an addendum, uh, details, to a 1996 law passed by Congress called the Communications Decency Act. What that law did is spell out tech platforms' obligations towards indecent content and empower them with the write tools according to the authors of the legislation that would allow them to deal with that indecent stuff. And basically in a nutshell, what the law did is it allowed platforms, digital platforms, to use selective screening, selective blocking of content in order to deal with pornography, calls to violence, indecent material in general. And it gave them broad discretion to do so, to, to uh, curate, to moderate, to deplatform, in fact, um, without incurring any liability for the content posted by third parties. 
In other words, if a tech platform like Twitter selectively moderates the content posted by its users, it doesn't then, uh, is, it's not then liable for any um, material that they post and cannot be sued for defamation, libel, or negligence. So that's the idea there. On the one hand, to allow these tech platforms to root out uh, indecent stuff, bad things that uh, would um, ruin the quality of the experience for their users, while on the other hand, not being legally liable for the content posted by users. Okay, so Victor, just so I understand. So the first part is, that these third these platforms like Facebook or Twitter are not liable for what a, a user who generates content pushes over the platform. So if I sent a tweet that said Victor Minaldo is a jerk, um, Twitter is not responsible for me uh, tweeting that. Um, if you were to get angry at me or sue me for defamation or whatever, but. The flip side of it is that Twitter is able to um, curate and moderate the content that is used on its platform. It's actually empowered by the law to do that. So if they, for whatever reason, um, you know, if you were a public person or I were a public person and they decided it was inappropriate for me to tweet that you're a jerk, they could take that tweet down or they could suspend my account or something like that. Is that correct? Absolutely. There's many reasons why they can do that and why they have the incentives to do that. In fact, you don't need Section 230 to understand why they can do that. Private employers and tech platforms and any business can determine what's acceptable speech or not. It's the government that cannot infringe on free speech according to the First Amendment. That being said, ironically enough, Section 230, one of the motivations was to foster a marketplace of ideas where rather than chilling speech, tech platforms could be incentivized to promote speech and viewpoint diversity. And that's where the immunity from liability comes in, where it's the third parties that are responsible and could face a suit of defamation or libel or even negligence and not the platform, which is just the conduit. But, but it's a, go ahead. Explain exactly how the platforms then, maybe perhaps unwittingly with section 230 protection are promoting free speech. Well, here's the deal. Imagine if you're an angry uh, person online and you're angered maybe in a reasonable way because something said something nasty about you. That describes me perfectly, Victor. I like it. <laughs> Perfect. Me, me, me as well, although I wish people spoke more about me in, in any way, right? A, a, any notoriety or any uh, um, buzz is, is good buzz, whether it's good or bad, right? I think a former president said that or, or is a living proof of that, right? Uh -huh. So uh, if someone were to be upset and say, oh, someone called me a jerk or someone's cyberbullying me or somebody is lying about me, if there was no Section 230, they could say to the tech platform, take that post down. Uh, I don't like it. And in fact, they could even uh, uh, say it in bad faith, even if it's not true, they could just, because they don't like the post, say that it's potentially li libelous. And that's a big lawsuit potentially. So that in theory would deter the platforms from, from posting anything controversial, anything off color, anything that's interesting interesting even. So in a sense, what it does is it 
gives the platforms a shield so they can post third party content, right? Um, and they can do things that otherwise they would uh, be worried about because they'd be worried about being liable for any of the uh, speech uh, um, written up by those third parties or, or any of the content of the videos posted uh, on social media, et cetera. So can I give you one of my favorite examples? Because I think people tend to, in what you just described, Victor, I think people tend to look at the negative aspect of, of bad information online, but they don't look at the positive aspect. So look at Yelp, right? We want real users to give us real reviews of restaurants on Yelp, whether they're good or bad, because we want to have the, that starred rating be more or less an accurate rating, right? So we go to Yelp in hopes that we're, we're reading the unvarnished truth as, as potential consumers, right? But the restaurants, of course, if they, if they actually have bad service or have bad food, they don't want that information up there, right? Because then people are less likely to go to their restaurant. So Yelp itself could not exist without Section 230 because it both allows the consumer to give reviews, even if some of them are not always accurate, um, but it doesn't allow the business to basically sue Yelp or sue, you know, sue Yelp or not allow Yelp to have the platform, um, even if there were a bad review, even if it's a bad review that's a lie, as opposed to a bad review that's true. So we actually, as consumers, benefit from this. It helps us improve our choices, doesn't it? Absolutely. Not only instrumentally in that it promotes competition and transparency and reduces search costs, fancy word for makes it easier for consumers to learn about things they might not necessarily have information about, but also the value of free speech in the marketplace of ideas in terms of uh, diverse uh, 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 viewpoints and a vibrant play, uh, place where folks are engaging back and forth and interacting with each other, that's exactly what it allows you to do. And again, it's a shield, right? It protects the platforms from having to do something like impose a blanket restriction on speech or engage in indiscriminate censorship because they're afraid of a lawsuit. In fact, it creates exactly what's happened, which is a selective moderator that's careful and dis, uh, has a discriminant, uh, not a discriminant, but um, has a, uh, discerning, exactly, a discerning uh, um, uh, moderating function. So how then does Section 230 apply to this election? Why is Section 230 now kind of all over the news being cited? And what does it have to do with the 2020 election? Well, there's the conservative critique of Section 230, which is that the tech platforms are not engaged in good faith moderation. Section 230's language is all about good faith moderation, right? A good faith effort to restrict access or availability uh, of material that is obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. So the conservative critique is that it's not a good faith effort, it's censorship, that this is let's say political correctness or wokeness run amok and that the moderation is geared towards shutting down conservative voices. When you talk uh, about moderation and, and with respect to this election, we're literally talking about Trump losing forever his account in Twitter, having it suspended from Facebook. So basically moderating what the president says and what a lot of um, you know, QAnon and other supporters have said. 
I think that's the prime example or the signal example, which is deplatforming certain individuals or accounts related to certain content like QAnon, the conspiracy theory. That's exactly right. But uh, conservatives had this critique before former President Trump was deplatformed, before QAnon really became a, a political force to be reckoned with. They've complained about political correctness, wokeness, cancel culture, and the like. But yes, you're right. I guess the apotheosis of that is what's happened uh, with the deplatforming of Trump and other uh, uh, QAnon uh, um, conspiracy theory uh, posts and the like. Um, and so the liberal critique is a little different, but it ends up in the same place in that there's serious um, desires to change Section 230, if not repeal it. In fact, President Biden is on the record during the elections of saying he uh, might favor repealing, repealing Section 230. And the argument the liberals put forth runs along the following lines. Section 230, because it doesn't moderate enough, because there isn't liability for the content posted by third parties, promotes misinformation that might be innocuous, uh, uh, just mistakes and the like, or things that are not necessarily factual, or more pernicious notions uh, that are outright lies, uh, gaslighting, um, deceptions that are um, politically motivated, conspiracy theories, and all that bad stuff. So there, the, for instance, they think about something like uh, the Russian campaign to sow disinformation in 2016 and hurt uh, Hillary Clinton's chances in, in that presidential election. So that's their beef with Section 230. So, so Victor, if I understand you correctly, to summarize kind of the liberal objection to 230 is one part of 230, which is that the platforms um, are not responsible for spreading of misinformation, disinformation, lies, conspiracy theories, the rest of it. The conservative objection to it is the other part of 230, which is that actually the platforms do get to curate and do get to shut down certain accounts that violate their, their terms and services or certain messages they could append a warning to, something like that. So it seems like section 230 was written in such a way that people would have honest critiques of it from completely different and opposing perspectives, depending on how basically how users then use the platforms and how platforms then react to that usage. Is that correct? Absolutely. Now, let me say there's a wrinkle here. In, in fact, the way that we've articulated these positions, they're polarized and they're uh, motivated differently. But there is actually a messy middle. And in fact, Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court kind of takes a liberal take on it uh, not a liberal per se, but but sides with the liberals in the following way. He says something like, well, maybe the platform should have distributor liability. That's like when a supermarket, for example, is on the hook for selling, I don't know, expired meat that might make someone sick, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they don't make the meat. Uh, maybe it's Tyson Foods or something like that. Uh, but they're responsible if they sell it to the public, right? Uh, and they can be sued for, for whatever uh, damages that causes, uh, health damages and the like, right? So, so uh, Justice Clar Clarence Thomas says, well, it's not clear that Section 230 gives platforms distributor liability, and maybe the court could visit that in a case. Maybe a case could uh, come before it where we, where we think about that. 
And so that is kind of compatible with the liberal approach in that the logical consequence of that might be that it would be less likely that misinformation, lies, and conspiracy theories would spread on uh, tech platforms. Mm -hmm. And we could get into the technical details as to why that's more likely than not on some tech platforms for certain materials if we want to talk about algorithmic amplification, something that you and I allude to in the piece and something that is a little technical, but might be where there is room to regulate the tech platforms in a way that does not do violence against Section 230 necessarily, looking at distributor liability as a potential alternative. Okay, quickly uh, describe it. algorithmic amplification, because then I have a question about sort of who's right in the conservative versus liberal debate. Well, yeah, let's take the liberal critique again. Okay, the liberal critique is, well, Section 230 empowers viral posts that are about lies and conspiracy theories and damage uh, the political system, trust in elections, foster polarization, even political violence, like the big lie that there was electoral fraud that kept President Trump from earning re-election, right? So uh, the, the um, role of uh, algorithmic amplification is that a post by a conspiracy theorist about fraud that's potentially, if not completely misleading, might go viral because it'll be clicked on, it'll be commented on, it'll be shared, uh, it'll uh, captivate uh, users in terms of their interest and create more engagement. And these algorithms powered by artificial intelligence are all about juicing up engagement on tech platforms like YouTube, for example, getting folks to share videos, comment on videos, and spend more time watching videos. So a post about potential fraud in the 2020 election could go viral pretty quickly because the AI, in a fact, in a sense, amplifies that message and spreads it quickly. So then aren't they both correct? I mean, conservatives are correct that the people that have been deplatformed at least recently have been you know people on the right politicians on the right if you look at trump or his supporters it hasn't been politicians on the left um would they you know would they deplatform you know some marxist who's calling for a leninist revolution or are they only really deplatforming people on the right it seems like it's on the right and the liberals seem correct because algorithmic amplification is one of the ways that these things go go viral so aren't they both correct that we should get rid of section 230 or at least that there are harms uh, embedded within it and how it actually, um, and how these platforms are used? I don't think it's straightforward for the following reasons, James. First of all, we don't know as, as social scientists, for example, that the AI, the algorithms are in fact the uh, causal uh, uh, trigger, let's say, or driver of the viral spread of conspiracy theories. We know you and I in the piece we discuss and you know we know very well about conspiracy theories before the internet spreading through the radio, television, or just books and propaganda. So I, I would just say it's not clear if, if it is algorithmic amplification, first of all. Second of all, I don't know if it's clear that in the moderating functions that Section 230 allows the tech platforms to engage in, they are actually... Uh, one-sided or partisan or, or hurting one side more than another. That uh, is an empirical question as well. Um, there is a little bit of uh, analysis out there, but it's not dispositive. It's not definitive. 
So those are assumptions, but they have to be verified, right? And, and then the larger question is, suppose they're true. As social scientists, and especially as social scientists that think about policy, uh, you and I tend to side with cost-benefit analysis. It's not the only way to do things. Uh, there's peremptory bans on things because they harm rights or they harm values, let's say. But if you think about the consequences of, um, let's say, market exchanges like what happened on tech platforms, it could be that we think about whether the benefits of those market exchanges are enough to outweigh any costs, right? And so you'd have to conduct a cost-benefit analysis. And if it is true that the costs outweigh the benefits, let's say that these things go viral, a conspiracy theory about the election being stolen, and they create a lot of social harm, you're in the realm of negative externalities. And then you have to think about the best tools for mitigating those. One way is to ban certain things, but there are other ways of addressing uh, knock-on effects or spillovers on society that go beyond, let's say, the innocent posting of a lie shared between friends in a face uh, group, the Facebook group. Yeah, and I think the other thing important to remember that is always lost in the media coverage on this conversation is that it's not as if the, the former president was tweeting about like, you know, conservative speech in the sense of like, everybody should read Edmund Burke or everybody should, you know, pray to Ronald Reagan every day, right? Like, that's not what the, the that's not why they deplatformed Trump. They deplatformed Trump because they believed um, on January 6th that he had used their um, th that he had incited an insurrection in Washington, D.C. They suspended his account, and then they warned him not to use Twitter, basically to encourage further insurrection. And in their view, he did not heed that warning once they allowed his account to be reopened. And then they permanently suspended him after that because he had violated their rules. He had not heeded their warnings. And in their view, to basically commission a crime, which is incitement to insurrection, which he was eventually impeached on. So it wasn't just that he was talking about, you know, the Republican Party platform, he was using it to do something fairly awful, in their view. And, and, and this is sort of their reasoning as well with taking down the QAnon conspiracy accounts. Um, so Victor, is that a slippery slope, though? I mean, is that how it starts? It starts with a very, very, you know, awful call to action that's violent. But does it ever seep into or would it ever seep into kind of normal everyday conservative speech or liberal speech for that matter? Well, again, I mean, if you just think about the First Amendment, this is a private company and it can do whatever it wants. I mean, the First Amendment gives you no obligation to um, post or disseminate speech. It, that's the uh, the converse or, or the flip side of, of uh, the First Amendment. The government can't abridge or restrict speech, but private actors are not compelled to share speech. So just looking at things narrowly, there's no violation of the law here. Now, looking at things culturally or politically, it's a different story. And then the question is, well, are tech platforms so important to the infrastructure of speech and communication that they should have some civic obligation to, let's say, give equal time, like the television networks have been compelled to do, to different viewpoints, so to speak. That's an ongoing conversation, and that would take an act of Congress, that would take new legislation. Uh, I don't 
personally have skin in this game and I don't know the answer, I can tell you that in terms of what's happening, there's a debate going on. But I think that's beyond the purview of Section 230 personally and has nothing to do with the First Amendment. This is about, I guess, in the new public square that is digital, what do we want as citizens? What do we want uh, as consumers of the platforms, et cetera, right? What, what are your thoughts? I don't well, know if I have a special take on this. Well, this is what I was going to say is perhaps a good critique of the liberal approach, which is, um, so what if an algorithmic amplification scheme with AI uh, amplifies Russian misinformation? Um, first of all, nobody's compelling you to be on Twitter or Facebook. You make that choice. Secondly, their terms and in, 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 uh, terms of agreement and usage are clear. Third, everybody knows this stuff is out there now. Um, and fourth, you know, why, why limit people's choices? Well, I mean, what if algorithmic amplification um, spreads Russian disinformation? Okay, maybe, but what if it also spreads the correction to that disinformation? Or what if as a consumer, I go on there and I wanna see content about say political economy and I'm, I'm getting fed new content and new content. And all of a sudden I'm reading Hayek and, and Adam Smith and all these things that are, that are good for me, right? Um, I'm reading Keynes, I'm reading, you know, like really, really advanced stuff. Whereas before I may have just put in my search terms, ah, political economy, what's that? And then suddenly I'm into this whole world of this intellectual history. So I don't understand the, 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 the liberal approach forcing companies to essentially limit consumer choices when those consumers get to make those choices and deal with the consequences. Well, absolutely. You can think about it in two ways. The first is, as you correctly point out, for every bit of misinformation, there's an offsetting bit of information, right? For every lie about the election being stolen, there's information about uh, election integrity and the fact that this was the cleanest election, as you've said, we've had in a very long time, if not mm -hmm. uh, in, in our history as a country, right? Um, and in, in fact, uh, even though it's controversial to say, there is evidence that social media platforms have contributed to more turnout. And if we think of democracy, turning people out and having more people vote is a good thing, everything else equal. Then there's the idea of, well, this is a competitive dynamic marketplace, right? Section 230 allows moderation of content precisely to make the consumer product better because nobody wants to go to a cesspool full of filth and child pornography. They wanna go to a place where um, they can have a conversation. Maybe they can be polemical and, and troll and, and, and burn people and the like, but there is a certain limit in terms of uh, the junk and the toxicity, right? That'll drive people away. And so the moderation itself uh, promotes a, a higher quality product and the algorithmic amplification might also do that in a way that improves over time. So what might happen is that the threat of competition or the threat of let's say um, folks exiting uh, the platform because things get too toxic induces or let's say disciplines the tech platforms to come up with better moderation. Let's say what's happening with Facebook now where they have an independent board that is weighing in on decisions about taking posts down and deplatforming. And conceivably you can get improvement over time. And I would argue, and I think we both argue in the piece that deplatforming former President Trump is actually one of those 
um, let's say, steps in the process of improvement, where there's learning, where there's um, updating on how to use algorithmic amplification or how to improve the moderation, and where there's an improved product potentially. And if there isn't, there'll be competition because even though folks claim there are barriers to entry in this space, and maybe there are, uh, there's a history of social platforms uh, that are um, uh, incumbents and dominant today being dethroned tomorrow by a better product or a product that's more appealing uh, to users. Let's think about TikTok as one of the new entrants in the last five years. Um, so yet to be determined, but I think there's a lot of logic to what you're saying about a self-corrective uh, um, a self-correction in the DNA of the platforms, and that is also fostered by Section 230. So, Victor, I wanted to kind of wrap up this discussion on Section 230 with a question that we have from a listener, and I think our discussion thus far is a good example of how we answer this, but the question is um, from Nancy in Denver. She asks, can you explain what political economists do which is different from political scientists? And Victor, you, you've, we've used words like cost-benefit analysis, competition barriers to entry, negative externalities. How do you answer this? What's the difference between kind of straight up political science versus political economy um, in terms of how you and I approach Section 230, for instance? Well, let's give a very concrete example without going into abstractions. So you and I are thinking about, well, suppose that you could show that the harm created by algorithmic amplification, in other words, AI selecting and um, recommending content that goes viral, and that content being based on lies or calls to violence or smut, let's say that happens. And again, the consequences for society are worse than the benefits to the people posting or sharing that stuff. Well, then a political economist would say, well, what do we do about that? A political economist would say, it's not obvious that you just ban that thing. There are other ways of dealing with uh, this phenomenon that you want to mitigate that are rooted in the marketplace and its incentives and the business models and the strategy employed by the users in the social media platform uh, and taking advantage of the, those incentives and those uh, uh, business uh, models and, and the strategies and behavior by the participants, you can craft legislation or regulation that'll be uh, more effective. And so a political economist would say, well, what's the problem? The problem is that the social costs exceed the benefits. Well, that means that the individuals engaged in this behavior aren't suffering the consequences that fall on society. They're only thinking about their own narrow enjoyment of the uh, um, interaction, let's say sharing something that goes viral, but that's a lie about the election. Whereas society is incurring all the costs. So as policymakers, uh, one could say, informed by political economy, how can we increase the cost to users of spreading lies without necessarily banning the activity. And one thing you and I have thought about is, well, you could tax that behavior. Taxing that behavior makes it more costly and reduces its quantity. And you, you, we don't have to get into the technicalities of how you would tax the use of AI to spread uh, messages that could go viral 
and that might spread lies, but there are many ways you could do that. And that's informed by the principles of political economy. Increase the cost of something, you make it less likely to happen. You make the companies that are involved, uh, you give them incentives to maybe find a different way to, um, uh, let's say, uh, recommend content on their uh, uh, platforms. Another way would be to do cap and trade. Cap and trade is a fancy way of saying you cap the quantity of AI that social platforms can use, you give them permits to use it, and then they might exchange those permits uh, amongst themselves. And only the digital platforms that can make the smartest use of it, because they're willing to pay for it, will deploy it and it'll be used in better ways that will minimize disinformation or lies. So or there, are, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just gonna, I, I, I wanna move on to talk about impeachment, but I think to sum up the, the way I would say it is, Section 230 by itself is, a, is, is about businesses and consumers, right? So it sounds like it's, it's basically just economics. But the problem is, is that the government has a role to regulate that, you know, whether they regulate it a lot or a little or how they regulate it. So political economy is really about the recognition that there are political influences and forces in the market like regulation, um, but it's not just that the market is completely devoid of politics, but it's also not that everything in political life is purely driven by only political considerations as opposed to market considerations. So 230 to me seems to be a perfect demonstration of political economy because it requires a th a thinking about the role of government and regulation, which is in the realm of political science, as well as with respect to market actors like businesses and individuals, which is in the realm of economics. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll say about that is what political economy does is that it imposes a coherent and consistent framework. And it says you can think about political actors and economic actors using the same lens, mm -hmm. which is incentives, constraints, opportunities. And therefore, you can think about tools that affect all of the players' incentives and their constraints and opportunities. And if you do that, you can find optimal solutions to problems. Like in this case, individual behavior or exchanges in a marketplace that have spillovers that might be negative on the rest of society. Like let's say the big lie about the election stoking the insurrection, which leads to fatalities, property damage and lack of trust in our democratic process. So that in a nutshell, I think is the power of political economy. So I want to move on to impeachment and impeachment is not an obscure topic in the sense that, you know, most Americans, well, all Americans now have lived through at least one impeachment. Victor, you and I were alive in the 90s. We lived through the, the Clinton one and, and there's been a, a second Trump uh, impeachment recently and there'll be a trial starting in a couple of weeks. That in and of itself, I don't think is obscure, but I think the origins of the thinking around impeachment um, are very not well understood by Americans, why impeachment is in the constitution and where the founders, framers think uh, thinking came from. And then kind of specifically now um, how, you know, these little tiny, it's kind of obscure rules in the Senate matter a lot to how the trial uh, is actually conducted. And so Victor, both you and I kind of teach and write a little bit about impeachment. And I was wondering if you wanted to start on kind of the um, intellectual or political origins of the concept of impeachment for us to then talk about how it made its way into the Constitution and why it made its way into the Constitution in the form that it did. Well, James, that can get complicated rather quickly. Maybe I'll offer some broad brushstrokes and allow you to fill in some details. Does that make sense in terms of how we go uh, about it? 
Sure. Well, just thinking very broadly, the story of impeachment is the story of democracy itself going back to England during feudalism, during the Middle Ages. Democracy in England was a struggle between monarchs who had unlimited power at first or a very strong uh, hand to play versus the rest of society, and especially the other power brokers at the time during feudalism, which would have been barons, lords, landholders, uh, the wealthy, the, the uh, folks with noble titles. And so the struggle starting during feudalism in England was uh, between the monarchs with a lot of power and, and theories of unlimited power based on the divine right of kings, that kings were chosen by God or, or at least had a divine prerogative to rule as they saw fit, versus parliament, which is where the landlords, the barons, uh, um, the, the nobility that were not the monarchs had some uh, leverage or some influence over the monarch. And you can go back to Magna Carta, which was a way in which landholders tried to enshrine certain rights and constraints against the king. Uh, and um, starting with Magna Carta it, it, uh, uh, during feudalism, we had a back and forth, a seesaw, if you will, with the uh, uh, um, folks that owned uh, property, that owned land, and that basically provided the tax base, trying to wrest some power uh, uh, from uh, the kings in England uh, that used that tax revenue, usually uh, not only to build palaces, but to wage costly wars, sometimes against the constituents of parliament uh, uh, themselves, which was the case of Charles I, during the English civil wars that broke out in 1642 and continued up until the so-called glorious revolution in the 1680s in England. Mm -hmm. And so basically impeachment was a tool that was crafted by parliaments again, uh, where the uh, uh, property holders, the, the people that owned land and the people that paid taxes to the king were trying to find a way to constrain capricious uh, 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 decisions and, and very divisive and actually destructive decisions that were uh, uh, originating in the monarchy. Yes, but the, the, the important point is they couldn't impeach the king. They could only impeach representatives of the king. Well, there was a, yes, that is true. And so they used that against, for example, again, Charles I, accusing him of being a Catholic and a popist, so-called, siding with the Pope rather than with the uh, uh, Church of England. Uh, they accused Charles of um, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, in fact, by attacking Scotland and Ireland and waging war against uh, uh, certain um, uh, elements in those uh, provinces, so, so to speak, of the uh, kingdom that were unruly or that were not going, not towing the party line. But they did attempt at certain uh, moments to uh, uh, experiment with the idea that the king himself, Charles I, could be impeached. And in fact, the culmination of the civil wars was the execution of Charles I 
Right. Fox. He got his head cut off rather than impeached. <laughs> rather than impeached, but they were playing around with impeachment before. They were floating the idea and they were impeaching, so to speak, maybe not using that language, a lot of the insiders in parliament or some of his advisors uh, that were uh, uh, complicit, let's say, in his reign of terror, if you will, from the parliament's perspective, it was a reign of terror, or at least his despotism, right? Mm-hmm. And what they did do is they floated a lot of laws and proposed to, proposals to make his discretion uh, uh, illegal in certain matters like taxation, uh, certain matters about uh, the national interest, matters related to uh, waging war, and uh, his ability to call parliament at his whim and also dissolve parliament at his whim. So they were knocking on the door of impeachment the way we understand it today in several respects. Mm-hmm. So can I say what I think is really interesting is then how the framers incorporate this into the Constitution, you know, basically 100, 150 years later, because um, I think it's one of the really well designed and well thought out aspects of the American Constitution, but I don't think people sort of understand the thinking behind it. So, you know, the, the framers were, you know, some of them were actually born in Britain, they a lot of them spoke English or, you know, were able to read British uh, political history. Um, and, and, and they were also observers of what was going on in England in the late 1700s as well. And I think the dilemma that people miss, you know, misunderstand uh, or, or don't really have appreciation for is they knew that they had to construct a new government that would have an executive official, okay? The only kind of example of that that they had in their lives was the king. But they didn't want to have a king, right? That was the whole reason they rebelled against the Great Britain and had a revolutionary war. So they wanted to write a constitution. They knew they had to have an executive officer like a king, but they didn't want that king to be a king. They didn't want that king to not be elected or appointed by God. And so they created the position of the president, right? Which is analogous to the position of the king because they're both the executive officers in those governments. But they had to do exactly what you said, Victor, which is then create constraints around what that executive uh, officer would be able to do, because they they didn't want to have to cut off the head of the president, should the president commit a, a high crime or misdemeanor like they did with Charles. But B, they didn't want the president to be um, so lacking in constraint that he or she uh, could do whatever they wanted, right? So they had to think about giving the, uh, the president enough power to execute the office of being president, but not so much power that they would abuse that office in the way that the kings of England had done. And they thought that impeachment and then potentially conviction and removal from office was kind of the ultimate um, break glass in case of emergency uh, way to do it. Is that a good way to look at it, do you think? Absolutely. And let me, if you don't mind, discuss the differences in the genesis of constraints on the executive and holding the executive executive accountable. If you think about England, it proceeded in the following fashion. It was the parliament, again, uh, the representatives in the parliament being the property holders that actually paid the taxes that financed the monarch's uh, adventures in terms of war or, or whatever. The parliament struggled for life and struggled for independence and power. And there, as I said, there was a seesaw back and forth, but often in the process, the parliament was destroyed by the king or it was uh, at least weakened by the king. And the only leverage parliament had for centuries, in fact, was the threat of withholding the financial means that the king needed to implement his plans. 
But short of that, they didn't really have any power. They didn't have rights, so to speak. They couldn't even assemble in a regular fashion. And eventually what parliamentary supremacy meant after 1688, uh, the so-called glorious revolution, was the ability for parliament to be separate from the king, to meet on a regular basis, and to have the power of the purse in a formalized way. Now think about the American case. Now we're thinking about the reverse situation where it's state legislatures with the Articles of Confederation that decide, going back to how political economy is helpful, they were in a sense political economists, they decide that they had a problem on their hands, which is they had a very weak central government, not a strong one, with a very weak executive branch, and they wanted to birth an executive branch, bring one to fruition that would help solve some of the problems about a common market, about defense of uh, uh, the 13 states uh, against foreign enemies, about regulating uh, not only the economy, but regulating uh, international trade and the like. Uh, so it was, uh, uh, in a sense, a backwards uh, a baptism. And as you said, they were afraid of the history of England, but they had the reverse problem, which is they wanted to create an executive branch without allowing it to get out of hand and run amok and, uh, and become tyrannical the way that had happened under Charles I, Charles II, uh, and, and subsequent uh, 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 executives, uh, even Oliver Cromwell, uh, yeah, when, Cromwell when, the, yeah. when the monarchy was, for a sense, rescinded for, for about a decade, and, and Cromwell's son shortly as well. So that's what's funny about it almost, in that they had an opposite uh, dilemma, and they decided impeachment would be the tool they would use, whereas in the English uh, uh, case, Parliament flirted with impeachment, but was never able to really pull it off. In fact, they were able to tame the executive in different ways and were able to gain parliamentary supremacy. It almost became a moot point in, in the uh, English case versus in the American case, it became the paramount tool that the founders or I suppose the framers of the constitution could deploy uh, to make sure that the executive would not grow too powerful. But the, the last thing I'll say is the thing that makes the American case different is a very strong independent judicial branch that was founded at the Constitutional Convention. And the idea behind that branch was that the states and their parliaments or their legislatures would be able to have a tool at their disposal to adjudicate disputes. And short of impeachment, it could be the judiciary that could decide on the constitutionality of the division of powers between the branches and in a sense circumscribe the executive before impeachment even became something that had to be contemplated. So that is also a wrinkle or a difference in the American case. Yeah, and so how this plays out in the US, I mean, this is now where I, I think I, I'd like to get critical with the framers and why I think there's a lot of confusion or misinformation about impeachment today. So. Article two, section four says then how Congress decided or, or how the convention decided to inscribe this in the US constitution. So it says the president, vice president and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So I think, and then the, the constitution then does not define high crimes and misdemeanors 
But what it does do is it says it will be, if we're talking about the president now, getting now to Trump, in the case of the president, it would be the House of Representatives that would be responsible for impeachment, and it would be a trial in the Senate that would be uh, for conviction and removal from office, okay? The first thing about high crimes and misdemeanors, Victor, that I find very interesting, because I teach this in my class on corruption, um, which is, you know, it's, a, it's about global corruption, it's not just about the US, is that the word high modifies the office. You know, people hear high crime and I think they think like really severe crime, like genocide or murder, like a, a, a bad crime. But what high is a reference to is to the office holder committing a crime. So Victor, you and I, if we're not president, we can't commit a high crime because we're not in a public office. Um, and, and I think that's what people forget is that it has to be a, a crime or misdemeanor with respect to the actual office holder being a public official. So, so Hamilton in Federalist 65 actually um, clarifies this a little bit better um, by uh, basically saying that the subjects of the jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the conduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. Okay, so that's really important for people to understand is that we're talking about elected officials here. That is the high part of this. And there, they don't define crimes and misdemeanors, which some could say is a weakness, because um, had they listed that, then we could basically measure any, you know, any president's action against that list. But Victor, I think the reason that they didn't is because they couldn't conceive of what the whole list would be, right? You can create a criminal code for all the things that you think are gonna be a crime for everyday people, but you can't imagine what all of the crimes and misdemeanors might be for somebody who's in elected office who has the public tr trust. It would just be impossible to define because it's not just a crime. It could be things that aren't technically criminal for anybody else, but are an abuse of that office or holding that office. Absolutely. This is where the value of political economy comes in handy again. The notion of an incomplete contract. You can't specify everything ex ante. In other words, before you have the facts or before uh, history uh, uh, allows events to materialize, right? You can only imagine the broad contours. So you have a, a dilemma there in that you need to entrust uh, actors in the future to interpret what you meant in, in spirit, right? Or, or what the uh, fundamental dilemma you were trying to solve uh, is, which is an executive run amok that's unaccountable. Uh, and that uh, begins to weaken the rule of law, which is what holds the whole uh, political system together to start with. And so that's where we can actually go back to the history of England to talk about another, in a sense, uh, furtive element here, something that wasn't expressed that, but, but was implied is that the legislative branch has to be strong and independent. That's something that the parliamentary, uh, uh, that parliament struggled with in the long history of the civil wars in England going up to this uh, glorious revolution and even beyond it. And what's ironic in the American case is that we have strong legislative branches in the 13 states uh, that made up the uh, uh, Confederation before 1787 uh, that were pretty confident and, and, and pretty uh, um, uh, steadfast in their powers and in their abilities to create an executive, but have now become weakened. And the legislative branch, in order for impeachment to work, has to be strong. It has to be deeply invested 
and its powers and jealous of them, right? It has to go to the political mattresses to defend them, right? What Congress has done, though, is it's given the executive branch a lot of power uh, in terms of not only the ability to wage war and foreign policy, but vague instructions about how to write new regulations, about the content of the law, even when there's a w- interpretation of it through the administrative agencies, and an abdication of its privilege to write the law in a lot of senses, right? Uh, and you see this, both parties deferring to the executive. Obviously, you see the flurry of executive actions by President Biden, which matches what President Trump did and which matches what President Obama did before Trump and Biden. And the abdication of lawmaking authority to executive agencies is in a sense, a symptom of the underlying weakness of the legislative branch and the ability for it to act independently. And in a sense, stifle the polarization and the partisanship that would otherwise occur within that branch. And that brings us back to Charles I. One of the reasons Charles I was able to set back the parliament uh, uh, so strongly in terms of the powers it had accrued and its ability to hold Charles I uh, accountable was that he was able to divide and conquer by having partisans in the parliament that sided with him, even took up arms against their fellow parliamentarians. And that, in a sense, might be what's happening today with the weakening of the legislative branch and the fact that it's kind of collapse into polarization and dysfunction and weakness. And what's interesting is that Hamilton actually predicted that this would happen. So he goes on in Federalist 65 to say there will always, we're talking about impeachment, there will always be the great, greater danger that the decision on impeachment and um, on conviction will be regulated more by the comparative strength of the parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. And Victor, what's interesting is this then informs why the House and the Senate have different roles in the impeachment process. The House is responsible for impeachment. The Senate is responsible for a trial and conviction and possible removal. Hamilton thought that the House would be a way more political body, right? Because it was, it was directly elected by people who could vote. It was directly elected. So he thought the House, it would be a very political thing in the House no matter what. And so he said, okay, well, the House can be responsible for impeachment which is essentially like an indictment, right? It's not a conviction, it's just saying, we think you're guilty of of this high crime or misdemeanor. He then thought the Senate would not be political, right? He then said, well, the Senate is, at the time it wasn't directly elected. These are, um, you know, kind of the the elder states people. This is the greatest deliberative body that even if it's really political in the house, the Senate will not operate in such a politicized manner. And moreover, the conviction in the Senate, which requires a supermajority, it requires now 67 votes. In the House, it was only a simple majority. In the Senate, it's a supermajority. That would prevent against the ability of the legislature either to weaponize impeachment and conviction um, for its own kind of political partisan ends, but two, that it would purposefully kind of make this process difficult. Right, like the standard then by which a person would actually be convicted and removed would be so obvious to it's uh, so obviously a high crime or misdemeanor that you would have broad agreement between all the legislators and that and that would then remove the person from office. So in a weird way, I think Hamilton um, they built the institutions to sort of uh, make it very very hard, precisely because they thought it would be politicized. 
But then maybe the remedy they picked wasn't exactly the right one because today I think people believe the Senate is a very political body and the Republicans are unlikely to, uh, you know, 17 of them are unlikely to cross the aisle to vote to convict Trump. Well, that's true. Um, you know, I wonder if that impugns their wisdom and judgment. It, it might, or it could be that the normal constitutional architecture rules and incentives are just turned on their head at this moment, but it's an exception that proves the rule. It could be that eventually there might be a course correction, right? Uh, and again, uh, it could be that in the, over the long sweep of history, in general, this makes sense. The Senate is more dispassionate and, and less political, uh, can exercise more judgment and uh, uh, use, um, let's say the national interest as part of its calculus. Uh, but for some reason, we're in this strange period where that's not possible. And, it, and we don't know the trial hasn't happened. It, it could be that some of these senators will come around uh, once the passions uh, 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 in the wake of the riot subside, uh, once um, we, we glean more information once the evidence is actually uh, uh, disclosed during the trial, if evidence comes out. What are your thoughts well, on that? I think, I think you know, if, if, if the Senate were not directly right, because they were thinking of the House of Commons in England is equivalent to the House of Representatives in the U.S. and the House of Lords is equivalent to the Senate in their minds. And the House of Lords was not elected. The Senate at the time of the Constitution was written was not elected. Uh, but the House of Commons and the House of Lords sorry, the House of Commons and the House of Representatives are. It could be the fact that senators in the US are now directly elected that is precisely what has made them even more political. Because of course, somebody like Mitch McConnell, his allegiance is not to the Senate as an institution. His allegiance is to his constituents who vote for him because he's a Republican. And those are the citizens of Kentucky, as well as his party. And so I think the, in, in a weird way, we think of the direct elections of the Senate as being democratic because it allows people to, to choose in a bicameral legislature, the upper house. But at the same time, it's gonna, it's, I think it's gonna make the body necessarily more political and therefore partisan interests are gonna trump any institutional interest. And moreover, you know, in a lot of ways, the process has worked, right? Like if you look back at uh, Nixon, Nixon, Nixon never went to a full vote on impeachment or a trial in the Senate because he resigned before that happened. But what made him resign were Republicans in the Senate telling him that there would be enough votes to convict him and remove him from office in the Senate. Okay, so in a weird way, it's the partisan, um, it, it was his co-partisans in the Senate that got him to resign. If you go to Bill Clinton, I don't think most Democrats don't agree. I think most Democrats agree that what Bill Clinton did um, was uh, was wrong, but they didn't think it was an abuse of office to have lied in a civil lawsuit, okay, about something unrelated to the fact that he was president. It was actually from before he was president. And so I think, uh, you know, and then, and then, you know, we can argue about the obstruction of justice charge, but I think the Democrats thought that Bill Clinton did something wrong, potentially illegal or, or subject to civil uh, penalty, but they didn't think it was an abuse of office. So there, he wasn't removed in the Senate, and some Republicans didn't think so either. And so, it may be the case that actually both of Trump, Trump's Senate trials are really the uh, exception and the process thus far has actually worked um, insofar as the Senate has been able to exercise the correct influence. But now 
it's it's as if the the partisan leanings are pulled to support the president so far in a direction um, that not only would he he probably won't get convicted, it's that even Republicans who have been on record saying he probably deserves to be convicted are now afraid to say that because they're afraid of their own personal safety in advance of the trial. And the, well, the, the framers certainly didn't want that. Well, what's interesting to come again full circle to the civil wars in England uh, during the 1600s, 1642 being the first and then uh, the first of three, and we might even include the Glorious Revolution, 1688, the same thing happened. It's funny, uh, the society was so polarized that people had to take sides. Either you were with Charles I, the monarch, or you were with the parliament. And this, uh, these divides were even uh, rife within the House of Lords. Uh, it happened at the local and municipal level as well. Every town and borough had to eventually chose a side. Uh, Ireland and Scotland chose a side or, or uh, precincts within uh, those uh, parts of um, uh, Great Britain, if you, if you will. So um, it's funny how it might be that the rot starts at the top with a demagogue that finds a way to polarize everything and, and create a, uh, a system where you take his side or you take the opposite side. And, and like a gravitational force, everybody gets pulled in either orbit. Uh, so there could be extraordinary events in history due to contingency or due to personalities. And I hate to go here because this is the opposite of the political economy approach, which is systematic and depersonalized and about incentives, not about individuals or personalities or charisma or anything. But it could be that in this case, that's what's happened. And it's the exception that proves the rule, as I said before. What are your thoughts there that it's the unique figure of Trump and his ability to polarize everything that could be responsible for the dysfunction or, or at least tilting this off of the way it's supposed to go, derailing it? It could. Um but in a weird way, the very, very specific, uh, uh, very specific characteristic of this impeachment article may be what his ultimate downfall is. Because even though the framers didn't put this in the constitution, in this very specific instance with Trump and the article on insurrection, there's actually another remedy that Congress could use to uh, bar him from running for office. And we actually got this as a question from one of our listeners who asked, is there a mechanism for implementing section three of the 14th amendment with respect to Trump without impeaching him? Okay, so to be clear, Trump was, the article of impeachment is with respect to insurrection. Okay, not some other high crime or misdemeanor, but insurrection. Insurrection doesn't appear in the original constitution in the way that we understand it now. It was actually uh, codified in the 14th amendment after the civil war because the, the Confederates had been insurrectionists. And what, what the, what the uh, Congress wanted to do at that time after the civil war was to say, if you had sworn allegiance or been in public office um, for, for the United States, but then had then enjoined this you know, this insurrectionist group in the Confederacy, that you could not then run for office and be president in the future um, uh, or be some other federal officer. So if you've committed the crime, if you've committed insurrection, Congress has a different remedy to potentially punish you that is separate from impeachment and conviction in the Senate. So Victor, here's what it says in section three of uh, the 14th amendment. 
no person shall be senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president, blah, 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 if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, meaning the Constitution of the United States, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So Trump has been impeached for insurrection. He has not been yet convicted in the trial in the Senate, but Congress is able to exert its authority under Section 3 to not allow a person who has been um, engaged in insurrection or rebellion to ever hold public office. So they could prevent him from running for president again if they wanted to. And how they would do that is really interesting, and it's different than the impeachment process. How they would do that is under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which says that it basically empowers Congress to decide how it's going to enforce Section 3. How Congress could enforce Section 5 could be to say that they would pass a law, which would have to uh, be approved in the House and the Senate, that declared January 6th an insurrection and anyone, you know, anyone participating in it, an insurrectionist, and then through their authority to do that and under Section 3 then, because Trump has been impeached for insurrection already, even if he's not convicted, I believe that they could then hold a vote in the House and the Senate to enforce Section 3. And that would not allow him to run for office in the future. And what's interesting, Victor, is it only requires a simple majority from both the House and the Senate. It doesn't require a two-thirds majority in the Senate. So in this very particular instance, getting back to your question about, you know, the certain personalities or certain um, uh, moments in history, you know, but for it being insurrection, Congress would only have one remedy, which would be conviction in the Senate. But because it's insurrection, I think they actually have two. One conviction in the Senate, barring that, imposing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and then removing him with uh, not allowing him to run for office in the future with a simple vote in the House and the Senate. Well, let me ask you a question. That's the way to do it. What about the politics of that? Is that feasible? Do you see a, a, an opening for that to happen in light of President Biden's uh, campaign to fight the pandemic, in, in light of his call for unity, in light of whatever the calculus is coming out of the House today? Well, I guess I would answer that by making two assumptions. Okay, so let's, let's first assume that um, all else equal, enough, all Democratic senators plus enough um, Republican senators truly believe that Trump should be convicted and that he did commit insurrection um, and that enough Republicans, I'm not saying all 50, but you know, 17 or a few more, believe that they would prefer that he not be able to run for office in the future, okay? So let's just assume that's true. Let's also assume that it's true that it's actually going to now be very hard for those 17 senators to make themselves known because they believe that they face uh, sanction violence from their own supporters or QAnon or supporters of the president. And so that they're nervous to actually vote to convict. OK, if I were those senators and I were afraid to make it publicly known that I wanted to convict the president, but I actually wanted to convict him so that he couldn't run for office in the future, I might try to negotiate 
basically making the trial in the Senate pretty straightforward, you know, over and done with without a conviction, but then try to negotiate with congressional Democrats to pass legislation enforcing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that actually gets him out of office, in which case it's only Democrats that have to vote in favor of it and no Republican support has to be expressed. Now, is that too Machiavellian, Victor? I don't know. (laughs) For these times, it's not too Machiavellian at all. I just wonder if there are things that would confound or derail that. like what, who would be the spoiler? How would uh, somebody try to exploit this for their own narrow political benefit and make it hard to pull off? Those are just the things I think about these days. And a lot of them are just unknowns. Uh, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, part of this I think too, is there's a lot of things in parliamentary procedure in um, how, how these legislations actually move forward and how the trial for conviction in the Senate actually takes place. Victor, we got, this is another obscure thing, but we got a, we got a great question from a listener, uh, Linda from Redmond, Washington. She asked, I want to understand how someone with no chin to speak of, I think she's referring to Mitch McConnell, is so effective at blocking Democrats uh, if you have any Mitch specialists on the show. And what she means is sort of the, the filibuster and the ability of somebody who's not even in the majority party to affect what goes on in the Senate. Um, And we had another question from a listener asking if we should get rid of the filibuster. I sort of uh, put these obscure things kind of together in the sense of like, do, do, are we always seeing Mitch McConnell sort of out strategizing the Democrats and being able to slow roll things and pretend like he wants one thing, but actually he's doing something else. And are there ways that they might try to use parliamentary procedure in this instance, either to protect themselves um, in the trial so that they are not, you know, harmed by supporters or to actually undermine the trial itself, or to do what I'm suggesting, which they may want to do, which is to to basically have some negotiated pact secretly with the Democrats to not have the removal come from the conviction in the Senate, but rather the 14th Amendment. Look, my own view on the filibuster, it's not a popular view these days by those uh, left of center, let's say, but I think there's a lesson here about the filibuster and other parliamentary tools like like this that create incentives for supermajority, for moderation, for um, compromise and concession making. I would say be careful what you wish for because the, one of the laws of politics, at least in democracy, is that you're up today, but you're down tomorrow. You're part of the majority to today, but part of the minority tomorrow. And one of the problems with polarization and this um, using politics as warfare uh, and everything being so heated and existential in terms of everything threatens uh, fundamental rights and interests, uh, let's say the Democrats, when they do something, the Republicans might feel like it cuts at the core of who they are and vice versa. One of the problems is, uh, and something that exacerbates that, is the lack of ability for there to be compromise, the lack of moderation, the fact that it's hard to lower the temperature. And I think that the filibuster is one of the last remnants that could do that, that could hold the promise of doing that, where it creates incentives to work across the aisle to try to find the compromise and concessions. It depends on the good faith of the actors, though, right? It can't just be pure obstructionism. And it can't just be an effort to stall everything uh, to the point that the uh, gears of the whole country uh, 
uh, are uh, come to a halt. And for example, you can't get vaccines out to end this pandemic. Well, Victor, I think that's yeah. precisely our listener, Linda. I think that's precisely her point, which is that Mitch McConnell, it doesn't negotiate or compromise in good faith. He uses the power of the filibuster to not compromise and to slow things down. So I see I see what you're saying. Like, you know, if they got rid of the filibuster, the, the, the Democrats in the Senate could more or less do what they wanted. Today, um, they would today. never have to compromise. Yeah. Okay. Today, today, but not tomorrow. Potentially. Yeah, but what I'm saying is the, the need to, to overcome a filibuster has been weaponized by Mitch McConnell. Um, and not in good faith, not to force compromise, but just to, to stop any kind of legislation from the other side. Because, you know, even if you get a Romney or, or a Murkowski or a Collins, you still have to get seven or eight more. So that's not enough. So I, and it doesn't seem to me, I think Linda's right in the sense that like, if, yeah, maybe if we had good faith, then the filibuster makes sense. But if we don't, then why would you want the filibuster? Let the Democrats rule for two years. And then the Republicans, if they re regain the majority, they do what they do. And then it goes back and forth. That's what's supposed to happen. And I just a, think I just think that runs a risk of further polarizing the country and making things worse, I guess, and of it being myopic. And the last thing I'll say is two wrongs don't make a right in that yes, maybe there's justification from a normative perspective like you're not doing your part, therefore I should defect. And politically, that might be expedient and the pressure might be overwhelming then to get rid of the filibuster. But in terms of the consequences, I just see it as uh, making the spiral where we're engaged in now worse, I suppose. That's the risk, right? Uh, it could be that everything is fine and you go to like a Westminster system where the, the Tories have power for uh, when they're when they have the cabinet and then they lose to labor and then they have power and you go back and forth without a filibuster without any breaks it's just majoritarian rule right dictatorship of the elected or of the majority but my fear again is that it'll just make things worse and and even if um it's true that McConnell is using the filibuster in bad faith to me it just doesn't logically or normatively follow nor even in terms of the, the benefits to the country over the long run follow, that you also get rid of the filibuster and then try to pack courts and give Puerto Rico and, and Washington DC statehood, in that it can just create further incentives for polarization and a lack of the kind of norms of good faith, of pluralism and of compromise that are also important to democracy. Now, I might be wrong and that fear might be unfounded or it might, I might be hyping it, but that's just my instinct here as a small R Republican in that our constitutional experiment, I know the filibuster is not in the constitution, but it's become part of the fabric in terms of the, the norms, right? And, and as you said, the parliamentary procedure, I just fear it's a further erosion of that fabric uh, in that well, sense. Well, I think I disagree with you on that, but I think one of the things that you and I both agree on and, and recognize that I think is always worth repeating is that the U.S., the, the government designed in the constitution was, was designed to be at war with itself, right? It was designed for the executive branch to be at war with the legislature, for there to be two different houses in the legislature that would you know, be checks on each other, that the courts would be a check on all of that. And so the slowness, some of the gridlock, some of the lack of, of um, you know, revolutionary policy is actually by design. That's the way the institutions are built. 
I think the real question though is, is this above and beyond even that part of it? Is this, is this gridlock above and beyond what the framers intended when they wanted branches of government to, to slow roll each other in a productive way? Um, as opposed to an unproductive way. But I think the sort of basis, the institutional basis of the slow roll of the gridlock is actually by design and exactly what this system was built to do. Absolutely, and if you think about things like federalism, judicial supremacy, which is what allows federalism to endure, the electoral college, the fact that the Senate was indirectly elected, if I'm not mistaken, appointed, I suppose, by the state legislatures, if you think about all those things, there is a definitely pernicious element in that that allowed slavery to endure before the Civil War, right? But by the same token, it also allowed democracy to blossom and that suffrage was extended in more states uh, in that uh, there was a rule of law um, uh, in some realms in that there was on the economic front policy that was consistent and that wasn't necessarily all about crony capitalism or about picking winners and losers. Although that was part of it as well, obviously. Um, there's no utopia, but there are important valuable elements to that and that go along with free speech that go back to the first thing we said and the ability to uh, assemble, the ability to petition, the ability to protest the ability to uh, organize. That to me makes the American system exceptional in some ways bad, again, with slavery and all the other terrible things that happened uh, in, uh, um, in our history, but a lot of the good things that did make us uh, and continue to make us the longest living uh, democracy. And that uh, I would say by and large allow for progress to happen like civil rights, uh, like, um, solving market failures, like making democracy stronger. So I would ju I'm just afraid in a small C conservative uh, 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 fashion that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because things are tough now. We gotta maybe use the institutions we have with the recovery of norms to get back on track. That would be one theory of the case. And I think that is President Biden's agenda if you think about it. If you take a step back, that's just exactly what it should be about and what I think his hope is and what a lot of uh, uh, folks that are uh, in both parties uh, more reasonable and worried about the national interest and, and have longer time horizons, that's what th they might hope to do. All right, well, Victor, I think that's a great place to end. Professor Victor Minaldo, thanks for joining me today. It'll be interesting to see where the country goes with Section 230 and the moving of the impeachment article from the House to a trial in the Senate in the coming weeks. Thanks a lot, James. This was a great time. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.